Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Well, I told you it was going to be a little bit of a wander. And all I can say is, if you've stuck with me through episode five, then it's uh, smooth sailing from here. I realize the last several episodes were more tedious, but now you can tell all your friends you actually have read the summary of the Warren Commission report. Maybe a bucket list item for you, or maybe not. If you listened closely enough during the last couple of episodes, you know that rather than the Warren Commission report being an objective review of what really happened, it actually turned into the making of a case for the prosecution. A prosecutor who saw just enough to make his mind up early about where he wanted to go, and then as always, right or wrong, the focus becomes proving the case. A subtle but powerful difference than simply seeking the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When that happens, you're not interested in finding all the facts. You're interested in winning the case. It's somewhat ironic that the reason that the Warren Commission existed in the very first place is that Jack Ruby's assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald prevented a fair trial from taking place for Oswald, and thus for all the relevant facts and evidence to become objectively introduced into a trial venue. Complicating things is that it wasn't a federal crime then to kill the president. Prior to the Kennedy assassination, there had been three other presidents assassinated and many other thwarted or unsuccessful attempts. It's just inconceivable that it wasn't a federal crime by then to kill the president. It is now, but it wasn't then. It was murder, and it was still a capital crime that the state had jurisdiction over. So there were jurisdictional issues, and that figures into the story. But this was too big of an event to follow normal rules. There was a moment early on after the assassination and after Oswald's death that rumors swirled in all directions about what might really be happening and about who might have been involved. There were even rumors about President Johnson being involved. The country was facing multiple investigations and inquiries, some being planned at the congressional level with hearings. And even though Oswald was dead, Under Texas law, there was likely to be an inquiry into his death, and that would have taken place in Texas in that jurisdiction. In order to avoid the chaos and potentially conflicting reports that would have come out of multiple investigations and inquiries, it was important to get the situation under some level of common control and try to ensure that it wasn't politicized as well. It was a dangerous time, and that was an important consideration in the process. President Johnson reluctantly agreed to the idea of a national commission so that there should be one overriding review of the facts surrounding the assassination. Well, you know the story in life of the best laid plans. We all know it didn't go that way in this case. You've listened quietly over these past few episodes, and you've heard the prosecution and their opening arguments. As I've said, it's not all wrong, but it's not right either. I told you we were going to unpack this and provide insight into some of the problems with the Commission's report, but we also need some good storytelling, too, after such a serious run of it in the last few episodes. It's Friday afternoon, and we're going into the weekend. It's a beautiful day here in South Florida, and it's about 80 degrees out. 
it's shorts weather here, and I know some of you can't say the same for other parts of the country. I'm not trying to rub it in, but I am hoping if it's cold enough where you're at, you'll stay in and listen to the podcast. I'm also hoping that if you're south enough and it's warm enough, you'll go to the pool or just go for a good walk and put your AirPods on. Because I think episode six is one of a good story tell, and it's also a great way to start challenging some of the elements contained in the Warren Commission conclusions. It's the story of Buell Wesley Frazier. I hope you'll like it. Remember, you can leave your comments at podcastjfk at gmail.com. Okay, let's get to it. So without further ado, here is episode six of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Thank you. Buell Wesley Frazier. Sometimes you never know when you're going to be part of history. Most of our lives are spent, as Shakespeare would say, in quiet desperation. He was 19 years old, and he had the weight of the world thrust upon him in a moment's notice. Who was he? Buell Wesley Frazier is best known as the man who drove Lee Harvey Oswell to work from time to time to the Texas School Book Depository, and particularly on that fateful Friday morning of November 22, 1963. Much of the story around Wesley Frazier is not in the Warren Commission report. In fact, it's not in very many places. Over the years, Wesley, as he went by in those days, was not one to grant interviews or really place himself in the limelight. Mr. Frazier was in his late 60s in 2013, by the time the 50th anniversary of the assassination rolled around, and he was kind enough to come and do a video interview for the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza as part of their oral history project. He was interviewed that day by Stephen Fagan, who is now the current curator for the museum. Mr. Frazier's gentle and kind disposition immediately shows through. Over the years, I, I think I've prided myself in figuring out pretty quickly what people are really made of, what's behind them, what's in the core of their character. You know, we all have flaws. Stick around anyone for long enough, around anyone, and you'll see them. But the point is that on balance, you can usually tell if a person is way more good then they are bad. Mr. Frazier is a good person and an honest person, one who respects others and learned it early and freely accepted that as a construct of life. Listening to his own words and watching him as he spoke of those events 50 years ago now was powerful. And I'm going to relay some of that story right now for you. Sadly for Mr. Frazier, that day in Dallas would accelerate the transition of a 19-year-old to an adult world where things are messy and not everyone is a trusting soul. And more importantly, as he learned, not everyone is a soul to be trusted. Well, that's the personal side of the story, and you'll understand it better once I tell the rest of it. So here we go. In the weeks and months before the assassination, Lee and Marina Oswald and their daughter June were back living in Dallas, but circumstances were such that Lee and Marina's marriage was strained, and Marina was living with Ruth Payne at her house with June. Marina was expecting their second child, and it was due very soon. 
Ruth Payne's association with the Oswalds is interesting, and we'll get into that later in more detail. But she was a Quaker who was recently estranged from her own husband. She was living alone, and she had a self-professed desire to learn the Russian language. She was part of the coterie of folks who befriended the Oswalds as they were introduced to the Dallas community, particularly to Marina. Given that she was living in the house alone, and Marina was in her current circumstance, she offered for Marina to stay there until the baby was born. It was a small house in a suburb of Dallas in the town of Irving, Texas. Meanwhile, Lee was separately renting a room in another house in Dallas. He would stay at the boarding house during the week and then arrive on Friday at the Paines to spend the weekend with his pregnant wife and daughter. At that time, Wesley's sister lived down the street from where Ruth Payne lived. Ruth and the sister were friends. Occasionally, the ladies in the neighborhood would gather in the mornings for coffee and a little something to eat and socialize about what was going on in their lives. Marina was included in those get-togethers, particularly when they were at Ruth Payne's house. At one of those little gatherings in September 1963, Ruth Payne indicated that Marina's husband, Lee, was looking for work and was there anyone who had heard of any available jobs? Wesley's sister, who was at one of those gatherings, knew that Wesley had been working at the Texas School Book Depository Company. So she asked her brother Wesley whether or not there might be a job available at the depository. Wesley had been working quite a bit of overtime, and so he approached his direct supervisor, Mr. Shelley, about the possibility of a job being available for a new employee. Mr. Shelley said he would check and later responded, telling Wesley to ask the interested individual to come on down and fill out an application. That answer got relayed to Lee, and soon he was at the school book depository filling out an application. This eventually led to his hiring at the school book depository on October 15, 1963. As I now recall the story, I believe Lee and Wesley didn't meet until the day that Lee was actually hired at the school book depository. Mr. Shelley introduced Lee and Wesley and asked Wesley to train Lee. It was a straightforward role, typical of how you might think a warehouse of that nature would operate. It was long before there was much automation available. A school book order would come off the printer with a list of books to be plucked for the order. The building was seven stories tall, with several of the floors or portions of the floors being used for warehouse space and still other portions being used for office space, some of which were used for the actual publishers of the books. Because the books included in the inventory were located on various floors, it was not uncommon for Wesley and the other workers performing this function to move up and down from one floor to another as they searched for a particular book that was on the pick list. It was a labor-intensive process, not dissimilar to what might have transpired in a typical Amazon warehouse in the early days before automation. Folks running back and forth, up and down, to find a myriad of books necessary to complete the order. At the time, Mr. Frazier believed that the warehouse was servicing five states. It was a pretty big operation. Completed orders were shipped in either one of two ways. If it was a small order, Sometimes it was just carried across the street to the U.S. Post Office. There was no FedEx or UPS in those days, let alone an Amazon service. If it were a larger shipment, it would go by a common carrier in a truck from the loading dock. Wesley was good at this. 
and he was eager to show Lee how to perform this function. As Wesley would describe it, Lee was a fast learner. He was a quiet man. He didn't talk much. He always responded when you asked him something, but he necessarily did not offer up a lot of chit-chat. Wesley liked the fact that Lee caught on quickly. On his interview for the Oral History Project, Wesley described an insightful and personal moment with and about Lee. After an exchange about some topic, Wesley listened carefully and then he retreated for a moment where he grabbed a small dictionary that he had at work. Wesley was a young man who in later years professed that at that moment in his life, he hadn't a great deal of life experience and he simply didn't know too much. A humbling revelation from a gentle man. So much of what he was saying at that moment was captured verbatim in documents like the Warren Commission report. Grammar that wasn't right as a 19-year-old witness and perhaps reflected modest schooling was painfully obvious to himself and probably to others as he grew older. As you listen to him now, in his later years, he is beautifully articulate. What this mindful and respectful Texas upbringing showed in that moment was obvious from what he did next. And what Lee saw and experienced and then said to him was an important point for history to note. As Lee reapproached him, Lee could see that Wesley was reading something. Lee was a big reader himself. Lee asked Wesley what he was doing. Wesley explained that Lee had just used a word in a sentence, but he didn't understand it. So Wesley was looking the word up so that he could better understand what Lee had just said to him. Lee took that in, and then he answered back. He said to Wesley, you're not like the other guys in here. You don't make fun of me. That moment is telling in many ways. First, it underscores the mindfulness and respectfulness that Mr. Frazier, a 19-year-old at that time, had in general for others. It also emphasizes the difficulty that Oswald may have had in assimilating himself into environments and perhaps using language of a more sophisticated nature than the audience really required. And he did that probably in order to try and garner respect. That may be a reach on my part, but it felt like it based on all I have read and heard about Oswald and certainly listening to this conversation from Wesley. Wesley knew that Mrs. Payne lived just a few doors down from his sister where they all lived in Irving, Texas. He freely offered to give Lee a ride back and forth from work whenever he needed it. He certainly was curious about why Lee wasn't living together with his wife and child, but at 19, he was also mindful and respectful enough not to probe in somebody else's personal affairs. So the topic really never came up in conversation between the two of them. He confirmed that, contrary to stories that appeared over the years in the media, he never spent time getting together with Lee outside of work, and their contact consisted mostly of their time together in the car as they drove back and forth from work. He commented that Lee while he might not have had a formal education, was a smart man. This was coming from a person, I think, who related to Lee's humble beginnings in many ways, knowing that this is America and a man or a woman's stature wasn't just dependent upon the degree hung on the wall or social pedigree either. He also commented that Lee was good with the kids in the Paines neighborhood, many of them coming to play with June under the large oak tree that still exists today at the Ruth Payne house. A small glimpse into one more compartment of the mind of Oswald. 
For many weeks after, the rhythm settled in, where Lee would accept a ride home on Friday evenings from Wesley and then ride back in with him to work at the school book depository on Monday morning after spending the weekend with Marina and June. Obviously, it goes without saying, but the Oswalds didn't own a car, and that was the reason for this necessity of exercise. That carpool schedule changed a bit the week of the assassination. Unbeknownst to Wesley at the time, Lee had a significant argument with his wife on Monday evening after she found out that he had been living at the boarding house under an assumed name. On Thursday, Lee asked Wesley if he could ride home with him that night. Wesley said yes without thinking about it, but then later realized it wasn't Friday. So he asked Lee, are you sure you want to go tonight? It's not Friday. And Lee answered yes, acknowledging that it wasn't Friday, but that he still wanted to ride home that night with Wesley. He told Wesley that he wanted to go to the Paines and pick up some curtain rods that he was going to use at the boarding house where he was staying. Wesley would later learn that no curtains were needed at that location. They were already in place. So, Thursday night, they both left together, driving back to Irving, Texas. When he arrived at the Paines' house, both Marina and Mrs. Payne are a little surprised to see Lee. According to both ladies' accounts, he was congenial and clearly wanted to make up to his wife after the difficult Monday night conversation by phone. By her own account, Marina was cold to Lee that evening. She was not ready to make up after Monday night's argument. Lee stayed that night with his family at the Payne house in Irving. The next morning he got up early and he left without encountering his wife or Mrs. Payne. The weather that morning in Dallas was cloudy. It was overcast and there was that fine mist of rain in the air in Irving as Wesley describes it. There was no modern car features in those days to automatically and periodically start the windshield wipers. It turned out to be a manual process to turn the wipers on and off to clear the windshield. Wesley did that all the way into work that morning. Leaving the Payne house, Lee walked the distance down to Wesley's place in order to begin the carpool. And then one thing happened then that hadn't happened on other Monday mornings when they were leaving. As Wesley's sister was eating breakfast, a man suddenly peered into the kitchen. It caught Wesley's sister's attention and startled her, and she immediately said something to Wesley. Wesley looked out and saw that it was Lee, and he quickly told her so. Looking back on it, Wesley does think it was somewhat odd and certainly unusual for him to peer through the window like that. Did it have something to do with the package? Wesley let Lee know he needed a few more minutes to finish his breakfast and brush his teeth, and then they would be on their way. They climbed into the car for the ride into the school book depository, and Wesley noticed that there was a package on the back seat passenger side, directly behind Lee. He asked Lee about it, and then Lee reminded him that they had the conversation the night before about the curtain rods. Wesley quickly acknowledged the fact, and the conversation moved on. At that moment, Wesley thought nothing more of it. Soon, they would arrive downtown, and Wesley was parking the car at the normal spot. It was a bit of a ways down Houston Street, not really next to the depository. Normally, they would get out of the car and walk together. But Lee got out first and gathered up his package from the back seat and began walking. He got out ahead of Wesley, walking at a brisk pace, and the two of them never caught up to a point where they were walking into work side by side. 
Wesley walked behind him the entire time. In the light mist of the rain, Lee carried the package that he brought with him that day in a certain way. It was in a paper bag, and one end of it was hunched up under his armpit, and the other end of the package fell neatly into his cupped hand of the same arm. It was basically upright, and one would assume it was an easy way to protect the paper-covered package from the light rain that was then still coming down in Dallas that morning. This moment is pretty significant from the standpoint that Wesley had a clear picture of the package and its height dimensions for a significant period of time as they walked in from the car parking lot into work. Later analysis of the Manlicher Carcano Italian rifle indicates a critical fact. Rifles can generally be disassembled, thereby disconnecting the gun stock from the gun barrel. Disassembling the Manlicher Carcano and placing the pieces together requires a package that's at least approximately 35 inches long. Lee was about 5 feet 10 inches tall. A 5 feet 10 inch man cannot carry a package that way if the length of the package is 35 inches. It's simply too long. On this point, Wesley is unequivocally clear. That is how he carried the package into the building from the car. Wesley goes on to state that the package was about two feet in length and significantly shorter than what it most certainly would have had to have been had it been the rifle. In later years, Wesley actually got to see a Manlicher Carcano rifle that was then broken down and confirmed this fact himself regarding the inability to carry this same make and model rifle that way. Other experts have performed the same breakdown and have independently confirmed this same fact. So what was in that package? Well, what Mr. Frazier does say next, he says with incredible conviction. He indicates that whatever Lee brought into the school book depository that morning from the car, it was definitely not the Manlicher Carcano rifle. As he says, I don't know how the rifle got into the depository, but it was definitely not carried into the depository by Lee in that way. As you all know from listening to earlier episodes, that is an important stated conclusion in the Warren Commission's summary narrative. Next, Lee and Wesley enter the building and go to work. Wesley hadn't been focused on the fact that the presidential parade was coming, and it was big news in Dallas that day. And many folks inside the depository knew that the parade route was coming right by the building, and they began to talk about it quite a bit. Management at the Texas School Book Depository Company announced that they were going to allow everybody to stop working and watch the parade when it came by around 12.30 that day. Wesley remembers how happy and elated that made so many of them. During that morning, he saw Lee several times, and it was a pretty normal day of picking books and filling orders. As the parade approached, Wesley stepped out onto the front steps of the school book depository, and his recollection of that moment was priceless. Over the years, he began to realize that seeing a president and others live, in person, and that close doesn't happen to too many people in their lifetime. It definitely was a lifetime moment for Wesley. He also realized that standing on the top steps of the entrance to the depository gave him a somewhat elevated view above some of the crowd just ahead of him and who were closer to the street. It was perhaps, as he described it, one of the best views you could have had to directly see the president and the motorcade up close.
As the president's limousine slowed on Houston Street and then began to make the turn onto Elm Street, Wesley looked on. The majesty of those visuals in that moment stays with him today, and you can tell that by the way he recalls the story. Then suddenly, shots rang out. Wesley was a hunter, and he owned guns of his own, including a shotgun. He was familiar with what a gunshot sounded like. Now, he did offer up another set of points for all of us to remember. The motorcade was led by police officers on large motorcycle cruisers. In those days, the engines on those cruisers frequently backfired when they were started up or geared down. When Wesley heard the first shot, he actually thought it might have been backfire from a motorcycle. He quickly realized it was something different. He heard three shots in total, but like so many who heard three shots, he said the first shot came and then there was a short delay and then the next two shots came in rapid succession. He didn't describe it beyond that, but I'm going to try to do so. So something like pow, pow, pow. This description of the pause after the first shot and the rapidity of the second and third shots is very consistent with other descriptions. The time frame between those shots was longer than uh, my reenactment there, but uh, the concept of having the last two be closer together than the first one is what I'm trying to convey. He also reminded us that the acoustics of those buildings in Dealey Plaza created echoes, and it might clearly have contributed to people hearing what they thought was more shots than that. Now, no one can be considered a definitive source on this particular topic, but Wesley feels sure in his own mind there were just three shots. Many credible people believe that was the case as well. Now, where they came from, that is a different matter. His recollection of the first shot is that it came from the front. We all know that the bolt-action Manlicker Carcano rifle could not have fired two shots in that rapid of a succession. We will get into that technicality of it later. What ensues next, though, as he describes it, was total chaos in Dealey Plaza. Plenty of shouting and screaming and folks moving all over the place. His first instinct was to move down off the depository entrance steps and perhaps engage more in what was going on. He quickly realized that was probably not a great idea, and he returned to the steps. What Wesley saw next is not something you'll find in the Warren Commission reports. It's a classic example of how they ignored evidence critical to the case that could have been problematic. There was a mass of people moving in the immediate area, but quickly one person came into focus for Wesley. It was Lee Harvey Oswald, and he was walking down Houston Street in front of the depository. He had left the building. He wasn't far up Houston Street when he turned right and he crossed the street into the large open area of Dealey Plaza. Wesley kept his eye on him, and as Lee walked along Elm Street and then suddenly crossed over Elm to the other side of the street, the throng of people continued and Wesley lost Lee visually in the crowd. Placing him somewhere close to that side of the plaza, where the picket fence is located, is somewhat significant, particularly as we talk about what Roger Craig saw later associated with Oswald's departure from Dealey Plaza from about the same spot. We'll go through that point later. The general consensus is that Lee traveled farther down on Elm Street, where he eventually picked up a bus. How he got 
from the Dealey Plaza area to the bus, though, is still a question mark in some ways. None of this eyewitness discussion was included in any of the testimony that Buell Wesley Frazier was prepared to give or gave the Warren Commission. Why was that? Well, this inexperienced young man from Texas would soon find out, and he would find out in the most frightening and traumatic way for a 19-year-old. As some order began to come to the situation in Dealey Plaza, employees of the depository made their way back into the building. A roll call was had, and as we all know, there was only one employee missing. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. That was no surprise to Wesley, as he had seen him leave. After the roll call, eventually the employees were told by management that they could leave, and Wesley exited. He had a sick relative that day in the hospital, and the next stop was the hospital itself. He was literally in the hospital room, effectively aiding one of the nurses, as he was instructed to time and count the number of drops coming out of an IV. That's when Wesley was summoned to the nurse's station. There, he encountered two FBI agents that wanted to talk to Wesley about the assassination. Agent Rhodes and Agent Scoval began the next chapter of this story. Soon, Wesley found himself downtown at the Dallas Police Department. He was interrogated intensely by the two agents for a period that he feels was approximately two hours in a small, narrow passage room that made it difficult for him to turn left or turn right and thus prevented him from not looking directly at the agents when he was answering questions. They kept at him, alternating various interrogation teams, and what he described was two sessions with the FBI agents and two other sessions with other interrogators. As time dragged on, hours went by, They hadn't even offered him a drop of water to drink. He eventually asked for some, and they came back with a small amount of water and a styrofoam cup. A small styrofoam cup at that, and not even a full one. He was really getting the treatment. Eventually, the infamous Captain Fritz, who was head of the Dallas Police Department Homicide Bureau, showed up. He had a written statement in hand along with a pen. He pushed the statement toward Wesley, and he told him to sign it. Wesley had the presence of mind to start reading the statement, and thankfully, he did not succumb to the terror tactics that were being applied. He quickly gleaned that they were asking him to sign a statement that he had been involved in the assassination of the president. At that moment, he flatly refused to sign the statement. Fritz then became visibly upset and began to move toward Wesley. Wesley raised his hand as if to block a forthcoming punch or some sort of physical action that he anticipated at that moment from Fritz, based upon Fritz's movement forward toward him. I'm not sure what Wesley remembers or has ever disclosed about the exact words that were used at that moment, but what he did communicate in his interview was that he told Fritz that if Fritz was going to hit him, he was going to get a good help in coming back the other way. The courage of a 19-year-old who had been violated just enough. Well, it came out at that moment. Well, Fritz left and without a signed document. Wesley was eventually released. Among the many terrifying moments of that day for him included the movement through a hallway accompanied by his sister and crowded with reporters at the Dallas police offices as they brought him in for interrogation. This frightened 19-year-old boy was just trying to keep it together. For those of us living in the transparency of the 21st century, it's easy to picture a jaded cowboy cop, a rather iconic homicide investigator, 
his name Will Fritz, bullying a young suspect into a confession. Will Fritz was an iconic homicide investigator, but most of his career took place in a different place and time. On that day, in the intense pressure and emotions of the moment, it showed. It was not Fritz's finest moment. How our naivety is lost in these days of modern times. They could get away with so much then, and so much more often than now. However good or bad the intentions were in the so-called pursuit of justice. Buell Wesley Frazier had never been on an airplane before. It was now 1964. Several months had passed since the assassination. His first airplane trip would be to fly from Dallas to Washington, D.C. in order to testify before the Warren Commission. Mr. Bell, a talented and artful Warren Commission attorney, was assigned to this particular deposition, and he questioned Wesley intensely for a long period of time. Wesley's recollection is clear. Mr. Bell had made up his mind already by the time of that interview as to what had happened that day in Dealey Plaza. He was not interested in hearing all of the facts of what did happen and what Wesley knew of that day or other days. Rather, he was interested in hearing only certain facts that seemed to corroborate his version of the event. And Wesley's view now, looking back, is more clear than ever that this gentleman had made up his mind before he ever got started that day. Perhaps this is why you will never hear of Wesley standing on the steps of the depository and watching Lee Oswald exiting the building just a few minutes after the shooting and as the president's car had just raced to Parkland Hospital. That's not in the Warren Commission report. We know he left, but this fact, it's certainly the only eyewitness account by someone credible who really knew Lee more intimately at that moment. And it's also integral to other facts that were left out of the commission report. Other facts that were not necessarily consistent with the narrative. Certainly the fact that Wesley was adamant that Lee did not carry the Manlicker Carcano into the depository that day was never explored. Why? You'll never hear from the Warren Commission that Wesley walked behind Lee for all that distance with the package in plain sight, and as a result, Wesley positively confirmed for the world that there was no possible way that the gun, which the commission unequivocally believes produced the murder shot, was not brought into the school book depository in the manner that the commission said it was. That part of the story just didn't fit the narrative. At the close of the oral history session in 2013, this gentleman, Buell Wesley Frazier, in the winter season of his life, was asked why he hadn't granted more interviews on this topic over the years. The good man that he is answered in a simple Texas way that you might expect. He said something along these lines. I don't know who might have been involved in killing the president, but if it was a conspiracy, I knew that talking about it would potentially be a risky thing. He admitted that at the time he was terrified. And as he said, he was not afraid of what might have happened to him as the years went on, but he couldn't subject his family to that risk, that risk of something terrible happening to them. That final statement from Wesley is telling because it really is thematic of the time around the assassination. Those witnesses close to this event knew that something wasn't quite right about it all and that possibly 
if there was more to it, more to this conspiracy theory, if it was real, then they themselves could be in real danger. From then on, pretty much all of them did not go looking for any trouble in their lives. Thank you for listening to Episode 6 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 